0: Hello and welcome to Monocle24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme.
1: I think that art, it's always been important and when you visit Venezia you really understand how art has been important in the past century and I'm sure that art will be important also in the next future, in the next century and particularly
0: now. This week we bring you a few city snapshots and unpack a few stories We've been following recently. We turn our gaze to Vienna and talk about controversial heritage as the city questions what to do with its Soviet war memorial. Hear how one of Italy's top art collectors has stepped in to bring life to one of the many tiny abandoned isles along Venice's lagoon and meet up with a bookshop owner as they get ready for Catalonia's most beloved festival, bringing romance and literature together. Plus, can you decipher your postcode? All of that and more ahead in the next 30 minutes, right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. We start today in Venice, which kicked off its 59th Biennale last week. And while Venice might be suffering from over-tourism... Other islands in the lagoon have exactly the opposite problem. They've been lying uninhabited and abandoned for decades. That's why Patrizia Sandretto Re Rabandengo, one of Italy's foremost collectors, stepped in. After buying the island of San Giacomo in Paludo with her husband Agostino, she has decided to open the latest outpost of her foundation there refurbishing derelict gunpowder warehouses and turning them into exhibition spaces, artistic residences and a laboratory by renewable energy company, ASIA. Monocle's Chiara Rimella had a chance to visit this unique island during our coverage of the Biennale and met up with Patrizia to learn more about the project and about bringing life to a different part of the city.
1: Some years ago, with my husband Agostino, we saw so this island and we decided that this could be our dream and so we decided to buy the island and from the beginning we had clear in our mind that this have to be a place in which we can together our love, that is art for me and renewable energy for my husband, that is a company on renewable energy. And so we decided to give a new life to this uh, small but fantastic island. It's an island with a lot of story, it was a monastery, it was uh, an orchard, a place in which uh, fruit and vegetable used to grow. It was also destroyed during the Napoleon period, the monastery and became a garrison and was used. We can see there are still now the traces of the gun-powered warehouses. And so we decided when we saw the island was really full of trees, full of everything, but we understood that it could become a dream. And so we started to work in order to reorganize the life on this island. Now there are three big buildings Obviously, now they are just the traces of the building, and one of them will become a space for art, the other one will become residences for artists, curator, friends, and the third one will become our house. So the idea is that will be like a big community in which artists, curators, theater and every people connected to art, but also scientists, also people connected to ecology, about sustainability. They will come, they will stay with us. So a big community in order to create, to live together in an isolated place, but a place surrounded by fantastic places. There is the island of Murano, Burano, and Venezia, San Erasmo. So will be a place for peace, for love, open to public, so the place will be open, not every day, but during Biennale, during cinema, during architecture and so on. So a dream that finally starts to become, not dream, but true.
2: How do you think art can play a role in bringing life back to the city and to the lagoon? We know that Venice has a problem in terms of people who actually live here. So do you believe in the power of art to actually have an urbanistic effect also? I believe so.
1: I think that art, it's always been important and when you visit Venezia you really understand how art has been important in the past century and I'm sure that art will be important also in the next future, in the next century, and particularly now. Now it's a very difficult moment. It's a very pandemic was a big problem. Still, we have the problem of pandemic. But pandemic also let us now understand that maybe it's important not only to live in the big city, small spaces, but it's also important to live outside. And I think that an island like that it's so important in that direction. As for example, in Guarene, where we have the other Guarene is in Piemonte a small uh, village uh, near Torino, in Guarene, where we have the first venue of the Fondazione, and we had a big park, and we decided to start to install works, to commission artists to create works to be installed on the park. And I think that this is very important, because I think that art has to go outside museum, have to go in the nature and to start dialogue with the nature and with people because in this moment so difficult I think that is so good for us also to see art outside the museum where we never could imagine to see a work of art and this I think that is so important for us and it's a way to better understand even the world not only art and culture.
2: Finally, what can you tell us about the architectural project, what this is going to be? We saw a couple of architects today in the crowd, so are they going to be involved, or who's going to be involved in the project?
1: This is a hard question, good question. For the moment, Agostino... And me with our uh, engineers architects from Asia as the ambiente that is the company of Agostino we work in order to receive all the permission to have all the permission from the the municipality from the Sovrintendenza, because obviously in this island every stone has to be considered and used in the right way and now now finally we are in a good moment we start to have all the permission ready to, in order to start to, to realize the building and it's true you say the truth today there were different architects on the island we are thinking about we are start to discussing with some of them and really I hope really soon to be able to give you the name of the architect that will work with us in the rehabilitation of this island. We already started with the landscape architect, it's Antonio Perazzi, an Italian architect that is already started to work. In fact, we, we will see close to where we are there are 15 trees that we decided to plant in memory of uh, uh, Jens Grotowski that was the famous director of theatre that was the curator also in 1975 of the Venezia theater, Biennale, and he used the island to performance, to play Apocalypsis, a very important play of it. And so the idea is to start also with the garden, because obviously it's be very important to rehabilitate the buildings, but at the same time it's also important to give life to the island. So the island now is not green as we would like, but in the few years the island will become completely green, completely full of Flower, trees, and good energy.
0: My thanks there uh, to Patrizia Sandretto Re Rabondengo in conversation with Chiara Rimella. And of course, they were in Venice. Now, the massive Soviet war memorial in the centre of Vienna has always attracted controversy. It's been bombed, daubed with graffiti, and was once part of a murder scene. Built right after the Second World War, It celebrated the Soviet troops killed, liberating the city. And its protection is enshrined in the Austrian State Treaty of 1955 that gave the country independence. But since Russia made its first advances in Ukraine in 2014, the monument has become a site of protest against Russian aggression. So what does the monument mean for the city today, as the image of Russia has shifted firmly from that of liberator to occupier? Monocle's Alexei Korolev in Vienna explores the question.
3: Many Austrians welcomed Hitler as he annexed their country in 1938. But after the war, Austria described itself as a victim of Nazism, rather than its ally. And the Soviet memorial in Vienna was seen as confirmation of this. This was also perceived
4: that way by the international community, both during the war and after the war.
3: Wolfgang Müller is professor of Soviet and Russian history at the University of
4: Vienna. And uh, the monument was also part of a general agreement, one might say. It was the Austrian government who was standing there uh, when it was inaugurated. It was also all four Allied powers who were also present. So, this was uh, a consensus that it should pay respect to the Liberators, to uh, the Soviet Army on the one hand side and to the Western Allies on the
3: other side. Das Heldendenkmal der Roten Armee was unveiled in August 1945, the first in a series of large-scale Soviet memorials erected across Europe after the war. It included a giant figure of a Red Army soldier, machine gun across his chest, and an extensive quotation from Stalin. The message was clear. We are the heroes here. But soon it took on a very different meaning, one that has sinister echoes in Ukraine today. This
4: liberation had some side effects, like war crimes and post-war crimes, or the plundering of uh, uh, the population uh, in uh, eastern Austria by the Soviets. By parts of the of the Red Army, there were atrocities being committed, and also plundering. There were problems with the discipline. So the Acceptance of um, the monument by the population decreased. Okay, my name is Paul Maringer and I'm
5: working at the um, Federal Monuments Authority Austria. When I was in the primary school, our teacher told us that this is the monument. Austrians are thanking the Russians that they left Austria in 1955, which is actually not true yeah. because it was built in 1945. They told us this is the last uh, soldier that left Austria, yeah. <laughs> which is all the way around. Yeah. So, um, and it's very interesting because um, it, it got names uh, also, like the, the monument of the uh, unknown uh, looter
3: uh-huh. or plunder, Still, do you think there is an element even today uh, among the Austrian public, especially with this monument, that Russians are liberators?
5: I think the Americans and the Eng- English people, the French, are more felt as uh, liberators. The Russians always were, f- were felt more than occupators, and there was a fear. But but this fear is also because of the Cold, Cold War and and of the development after uh, forty five and that's why it, um, I think it was more uh, negatively f- felt.
3: After the Cold War, the negativity of the monument subsided, only to come back in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea and stirred up conflict in the Donbass, and again two months ago as it launched a full-blown invasion of Ukraine. So now a great big question is looming here. Should monuments glorifying Soviet soldiers have a place in Europe? The last word to Professor Wolfgang Müller. I would see that perhaps
4: there are more and more um, monuments created for the victims of state crimes and so on. So these are not the usual or the classical monuments for the victories. I think it is very important what is being commemorated, who is being commemorated and how.
3: For Monocle and Vienna...
4: I'm Alexei
0: Korolov. The 23rd of April is a date that holds a special place for Catalonians as every year they celebrate the festival of San Jordi. The date is shared by two traditions, World Book Day and Valentine's Day. And this confluence results in partners, families and friends exchanging roses and books to celebrate love, and literature in equal measures. To find out what is behind this rose-tinted, literary-themed day, our contributor, Hester Underhill, spoke with Maria Valencia from the Barcelona bookstore Libreria Finestres as they were gearing up for the festival ahead. Let's listen in.
6: The 23rd of April each year sees Catalan streets come alive for a unique celebration commemorating two different events which happen to fall on the very same day. To tell me more about this combination of love and literature which consumes the carrers, I spoke with Maria Valencia of Libreria Finestres in the lead up to this year's big day.
2: San Jordi-Saint is George which is the patron saint of Catalonia and you have two big dates on the 23rd of April. One is St. George and you have all the folklore story behind with the knight and the dragon and the princess kidnapped by the dragon and St. George killing the dragon and from the blood of the dragon it comes out a rose, a red rose that the knight gives to the princess. So that's why men used to give roses to ladies in St. George. And on the other side, on the 23rd of April, we celebrate the deaths of Shakespeare and Cervantes. Actually, it was not really the same day because with the changing of the calendars, there was a time where Britain and Spain didn't have the same calendar. But it was on the 23rd of April of the same year, technically. It's more than a romantic thing. And because you can give books and roses to your friends or family members, it's not only to your partner or to your boyfriend or girlfriend. It's more democratic and it's a pleasure to give books to your girlfriends or to your mom and dad.
6: Bookstores around Barcelona put on extra staff and pull long hours to cater to the rise in demand occurring on the 23rd. So how does Libreria Finestres and the rest of the neighbourhood usually mark the festivities?
2: Many of the bookshops in Barcelona, we have signatures. One of the nice things about St. Jordi is it's not a bank holiday, so everyone goes about their business as usual, but everyone takes a moment or a few hours to stroll on the city, browse books, and maybe get a signed copy from your favorite author, because there are many writers coming to Barcelona on the 23rd to make signatures of books so we do have two stands on the street we have like six authors per hour during six hours of the day signing books for everyone who wants to come they are mainly catalan but we have a lot of people coming from the rest of spain and a few authors from abroad. So you just have to go and watch the web pages of all the bookshops in Barcelona and look for your favourite author to see if he's coming or she's coming.
6: This uniquely Catalan celebration also encourages buyers to share Catalonian authors when giving gifts. So is there a specific sort of book likely to be passed around during St. Jordi?
2: In St. Jordi, you sell a lot of Catalan books, mainly novels because, well, it's a typical Catalan holiday, so lots of people want to buy Catalan authors, so that's normal. And usually we sell more novels, more fiction, than other kinds of books. But it's, well, of course, in essays and history, we have a lot of books about Russia, about Ukraine, because, of course, we all want to know what's happening there, and we want to be well-read about it, but it really depends on people. Some people really are looking for the books of the season, the new books that everyone is talking about, and some people come with a list. People have asked them to get them so-and-so book. and other people are really spontaneous, so it's just like in Christmas, actually.
6: St. Jordi is a regional celebration that every Catalan should feel proud of, And while it's certainly a boon for bookshop owners, a holiday that encourages those observing to read more is certainly a novel idea.
2: Even in small cities or in towns, you will find stands with books and stands with roses because really everybody is buying a book. So that's nice. Every Catalan buys at least one book a year.
6: For Monocle in Barcelona, I'm Hester Underhill.
0: The logistics behind how our mail gets from the post box on the corner to someone's doorstep is one of those city machinations that we don't often think about. But the way our mail gets sorted and distributed to the right places comes largely down to a series of letters and numbers, or what we refer to as the postcode. The London Postal Museum's new exhibition, Sorting Britain, The Power of Postcodes, Details not only how post is processed and sorted, but also how the humble postcode came to be. Our contributor, Rachel Pells, caught up with Chris Taft, the curator of the London Postal Museum, and sent us this report.
7: Postcodes are so much more than a handy way of finding an address. The short sequences of letters and numbers we use to direct our packages and postcards are something most of us probably take for granted. But if you think about it, postcodes impact almost every aspect of our lives, from choosing a place to live, to which mobile phone contract to buy. We use them to vote, to get directions and access to healthcare. They're used by commercial companies, who want to build a profile of their customers to sell them the best car, holiday or insurance policy. But they're also used as a measure of social mobility, and they enable researchers to monitor the general health, wealth and opportunities awarded to different geographical regions of the country. But where did postcodes come from? It's a story being celebrated at the London Postal Museum, WC1X0DA, as part of a new exhibition showcasing the history and legacy of the postcode and why it came to be, as museum curator Chris Taft explains.
8: Prior to the introduction of postcodes, post was reliant really on people's writing addresses and in the very early days of the postal service you didn't even have sort of formal addresses people would just write to people at a particular location generally sometimes not even that i mean we've got on display in the exhibition as part of the museum's collection we've got an example of a letter that's addressed simply to an individual just simply just a lieutenant osborne it's addressed to and in those days the volumes of mail were comparatively small and the people who were using the post often relied on the postal service knowing who they were or where they were. You would maybe write to, it's unusual to write to an individual and expect it to get there unless it was a very, very well-known individual. Later, as the volumes of mail started to increase, there were various attempts to sort of standardise addresses, and that's where street numbering kind of first properly comes in, because houses often had names, and as they would getting into more and more houses and the streets became longer, it became more and more complicated.
7: It was only in the 18th century when attempts at standardising addresses began, with the introduction of house numbers and later an attempt at standardising street names too. The first proper attempt at formal coding for post came about much later with the Industrial Revolution. London was growing rapidly in size and population, and the post office found their workers were struggling to keep up with demand. To accelerate the delivery of mail in London, The inventor and social reformer, Sir Roland Hill, proposed a solution which involved dividing up the capital into 10 separate postal districts based on compass points, which are still largely used in London today.
8: Postal coding really did begin with the London districts and that spread very quickly to some of the other big cities, Edinburgh, Manchester. Liverpool got districts as well, so they started with those districts. But what really drove the development of the postcode was the introduction of more technology more machinery so this began in the years after the first world war as technology was beginning to be developed more and the post office in the late 1920s experimented with a dutch machine a sorting machine that was capable of sorting letters at much greater speed than people could It relied on operators keying in information based on the destination of the letter, but the machine would then sort the letter into bundles. The machine wasn't highly successful. It was very, very noisy indeed. It was huge. It was obviously very expensive. And it wasn't considered to be the right answer, but it was the start of something. It was the start of using machinery to sort post out and try and speed that process up. What then happened, of course, is the Second World War broke out and the Second World War delayed significantly the development of sorting machinery and automated sorting of letters because of the priorities for the country.
7: The familiar two-part six- or seven-digit postcodes we recognise today were introduced as part of a pilot study in Norwich in 1959 thanks to a system developed using wartime code-breaking technology at the Post Office Research Station in Dollis Hill.
8: Norwich was picked, I think, partly because it was a relatively small city. It wasn't as big as somewhere like Manchester or London, where population was much bigger. But also they had, that's Norwich was where they were already trialling some of the machines, they already had some of the sorting machines at Norwich, so Norwich seemed like a good place and then eventually deemed to be a success, it was rolled out to the rest of the country. So when coding was first being trialled, the post office were expecting the postal workers to apply the codes to the letters once they came into the sorting office and that relied on the workers memorising codes, you had to look at a letter, work out where it was going and hope that the address information was sufficient to know the sort of county that it was going to. And then you had to memorise the code for the relevant county. And then the postal work had to key in that code. You had to know where it was going. So it relied on knowledge and also memory of these codes. So the post office then decided the better way would be to ask the public to write the codes on the envelopes themselves. And generally speaking, it was well received. There was a little bit of opposition to it as there always is to anything that's new, and some people kind of complained that they would rather that prices go down than have to or at least stay the same and not keep pushing the prices up and you know having to then introduce codes. But the majority of people went for it and used it. But once the national rollout of the new postcodes was completed by 1974, the post office then started to sort of really push very, very hard to promote the postcode. So there was a big campaign, a big publicity campaign done nationwide to encourage people to use the postcode. And that culminated really in the development of a a little character called Poco the postcode elephant, a little pink elephant, which a knot tied in its trunk, to help it remember its postcode. And so this character was used to then help promote the postcode to everybody. And that was prevalent from the seventies, mid-70s right through to the early 1980s. And by the mid-1980s, the post office sort of felt that that campaign had done its job and they continued to promote the postcode. But by then, people were, generally speaking, using it. So they kind of felt it had done its job, really.
7: Today, technology has advanced to the extent that we have more and more ways to divide up the country into sign location points using GPS and apps on our phones. And yet, the coding system invented over 60 years ago is still the main tool that we rely upon as a society to find out where we are and where we need to be. The fact we use postcodes almost every day without thinking is testament to the success of an idea that was first rolled out not so long ago in terms of the long history of sending letters.
0: My thanks there to Rachel Pearls for that report. And that's all for this week's edition of the programme. For your weekly dose of urbanism, make sure you subscribe to the show. New episodes of The Urbanist are out every Thursday and our sister show, Tall Stories, every Monday. Today's programme was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, And David also edited the show. And to play you out of this week, well, here's Steer with Cityside. Thank you for listening, city lovers.